All right, so what is your favorite topic for a sermon? Grace, love, Christmas. Are you more of the like self-help ones? How to win friends and influence people? Maybe you like the racier topics. Finances, sex, always a popular one. What about death? Anyone super excited to hear a sermon on death? Okay, well, that's our tonight message tonight. <laughs> Chapter 23, Sarah's death and burial. And what's interesting is if you look back through church history, you'll find that sermons on death were a lot more common many years ago. When you walked into a church, if you picture a little old country church, what did you have to walk through to get to the front door of that church? The cemetery. That was on purpose. It was to remind every person as they walk through the door, this thing is very, very temporary. This life we live is very, very short. And the only thing certain is death and taxes, right? Death is coming for all of us, and it's good occasionally, as Solomon says, to stand back and think about it. Solomon says it's better to go to a funeral than a party because it makes us take stock of our lives. It makes us stand back and, and maybe reshuffle a few priorities as we think through things. So, chapter 23, Sarah's death. It says in verse one, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We've been tracking with Sarah and Abraham for the last 12 chapters. We know a ton about their lives. And then this is the end for Sarah. It's the first funeral we see in the Bible. It's the only time a woman's age is mentioned at death. I think all the other women in the Bible got together and sent out a petition like, God, you're going to air all of our dirty laundry. We're not talking about our age, okay? That one's off limits. It's the only one. But as I look at Sarah and as I think about the prioritizing and coming back, I think, what would be one sentence that would encapsulate Sarah's life? What would go on Sarah's tombstone? What would go on my tombstone? I got a few suggestions. I looked them up on wonderful Google today. We have Sarah Riker, destined to be a woman with too many cats. So I don't know if you want that on your tombstone. There was another one that said, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. <laughs> oh, that's quite the accomplishment. This one was my favorite. I told you I was sick. <laughs> what would be on Sarah's tombstone? I can tell you what would be on Sarah's tombstone. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is this amazing chapter. It's called the Hall of Faith. And it goes through all these men and women of the Old Testament. And it lists out the things that by faith, God was able to do in and through them. And here's what it says about Sarah. 
By faith, Sarah received power. What a cool thing to have on your tombstone. By faith, Sarah received power. And then it continues to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, Sarah received power. And I was thinking about that statement this week and I was like, okay, what if I put my name in there? And if I said, by faith, James, fill in the blank. What about you? It's a good thought exercise. If you look back at your life and you were to say, by faith, I stepped out and went on that missions trip. By faith, I had children and by God's grace, they they all made it. By faith, I never took a risk. By faith, by faith what? Because by faith, power is available to each of us. By faith, Sarah received power and she lives a life that puts her in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. And that's what I want. I want to live a life. I want each and every single one of us, I want you guys to live a life that when, when God is building heaven, he has to make a hallway of faith and put your names down the side of it with this list of things that you did. I want to make it into the hall of faith. And so I question myself and I look at Sarah and I say, how? How did Sarah, what kind of life did Sarah live that put her in the hall of faith? And I just kind of want to do a flashback over the last 12 chapters because that's what you do at a funeral. You look back at a person's life and you look at the things that they accomplished and where it brought them. And Sarah's life, if you look at it, is so brilliant. And I think that what puts her in the hall of faith is the choices that she made. Because that's what our life's about, is the choices that we make. And so if you go all the way back, here's the first thing. Sarah made a choice about her faith. You and I need to make a choice about our faith faith. When you go back and you read the beginning, when you're introduced to Sarah, there's given some names of her parents, of her uh, mother and her father, her, some other members of her family. And if you look at what the Hebrew names mean, it means that they were all pagan priests. Her father's name means something like a uh, priest of the moon God. So Sarah grew up in this very, very pagan family, this very pagan tradition And she marries Abram. And then at some point, Yahweh speaks to Abram. And I'm sure Abram comes home and has this conversation with his wife. And he's like, listen, moon God, not working out for us. I met this God named Yahweh and tells her a little bit about him. And I think Sarah at that point or some point soon after that has to decide, am I sticking with the faith I grew up with? Am I sticking with my traditions in my family? Or am I going to make... Yahweh, my God. Have you made a choice to make Jesus your God? Because he can't be your spouse's God. That doesn't lead to a life filled with power from faith. He can't be your parents' God. He can't be your pastor's God or your church's God. We have to have this point in our lives where we stand back and go, Jesus is my God. I'm making a conscious 
choice about my faith. And sometimes those choices require questions, tough questions. And you're never gonna get all the questions answered, but if you're in here today and you've got questions about Jesus, about difficult things you've heard in the Bible, things you've read, ask those questions. We aren't scared of them here. We'll make Matt answer them. It'll be fine. (laughs) Ask the questions. And then periodically, I think we need to stand back and almost renew that faith. Not that we lose it, but for myself personally, I occasionally stand back and I just be like, yes, this is the direction my life is. I serve Jesus. He's my God. But unless you consciously make that choice, and sometimes you have to make that choice again every single day, because there's so many other things that want us to serve them. Money, power, sex, me, the guy in the mirror wants me to serve him. And I have to make that choice like Sarah did. No, I choose Jesus. So that's the first thing Sarah does. But then Sarah does this. She makes a choice about the direction of her life. Her and Abraham do this together. And I think this is very important. If you're single, you do it by yourself. If you're with a spouse, you do it with your spouse. And you guys make a choice about the direction that your life is going to head. Abraham and Sarah are called by God to leave everything they know and to go and travel to a new country, to a new area, and they decide together, I'm sure, and with much conversation, that's what we're gonna do. That's the direction for our family. And it's conscious and it's intentional. And I think that's the key because we, me, the culture that we live in is so fast-paced, it's so busy, there's so many things and distractions coming at us that if you and your spouse, if you personally don't sit down periodically and intentionally decide the direction your life is supposed to be going, you're gonna end up somewhere you have no idea how you got there. Amen? And those decisions take prayer and they take fasting. And what's so great about that is, even if they're very difficult decisions, if you guys pray together and you fast together and God reveals the direction your family is supposed to take with each other, then all the difficulties that come along that path, you know you're still headed in the right direction, right? God wants us to seek him in those big questions, but it takes time. It takes time to seek the Lord. It takes time to discuss this with your spouse. It's really important to set aside this time to actually do this. These kinds of, what is the direction for our family over the next six months, over the next year, over the next five years, those conversations do not happen at nine o'clock at night after you finally got the kids all down and you slump down on the couch and be like, we made it. Do they? Anybody have those awesome conversations with their spouse at that time of night? No, that's when you fall asleep, watch TV or fight, right? That's, That's what happens then. These conversations happen when you set time apart, when you go on a date with your spouse, when you say, listen, my wife and I used to do this before we had kids and now we have to figure out other ways, but we would always go for a long walk on New Year's Day. We talk about the past year. We talk about the upcoming year. What did we do well? What did we not do well? Where do we want to head? And if we felt like there was a a pathway that we were supposed to take, then the next few days would be prayer, would be fasting. Lord, confirm this in our lives. Now let's go. 
It's a conscious choice that Sarah makes. And I think that's so important because the next thing that she does is she makes a choice to endure trials. And it's really hard to endure trials if you're not 100% sure that you're heading the direction you're supposed to be going. Because you keep thinking that maybe this trial is supposed to be turning me. But if you've sat down, if you prayed, if you know you're heading in the right direction, then when trials come, you can go through them. And Sarah goes through some trials, doesn't she? Most of her trials are because of her husband. No amens, ladies. That's not, it's not the time for that. <laughs> Abraham's not easy to live with, right? Multiple times, he turns her over into another man's harem. And then at this certain point, Sarah's going through the trial where she can't have a child. She can't have a child. So remember what happens is a number of chapters ago, she comes to Abraham and she's like, Abraham, I think you should sleep with my handmaiden, Hagar. I think that was a trick question. And Abraham failed. The correct answer was, no, honey, you're the only woman for me. Okay, try that one out, man. No, honey, you're the only woman for me. Okay, when the trick question, do you think she's pretty? No, honey, you're the only woman for me. Okay, if you put that one in your arsenal along with that dress makes you look beautiful and just pull them out when the conversation gets tense, it'll go well. That was a hard thing for Sarah to walk through, but she walks through it. And here's what I know. Anybody that I've talked to who's been married for 40, 50, 60 years will tell you there was a hard time in their marriage. There was a hard time that they had to walk through and they will all tell you it was worth it. They'll all tell you it was worth it. I talk to my parents about this all the time because they're, they're looking back at friends who got divorced in you know, 15 years of marriage, 20 years of marriage, 25 years of marriage. And now they're looking at them 10 or 15 years after that and they're going, I don't think that worked out for you the way you wanted it to. You thought everything was gonna be roses and sunshine if you just got out of this difficult situation and found someone new or did your own thing. And most of the time, that's not how it works. And yet you look at people who walk through those difficult times and you go, that's what I want. I want that. It's worth it. It's worth walking through those difficult things. And Sarah does, and she endures. Not always perfectly. She gets a little jaded, right? There's that scene where God's like, yeah, you're still gonna have a child. She's like, <laughs> Right. You know what? That's not recorded in the hall of faith. Isn't that cool? Sarah laughs at God, makes a huge blunder. God calls her out on it, calls Abraham out on it. Did your wife just laugh at me? Oh, no, definitely not. You gave her to me, God. Pulling an Adam. That's not recorded. I love that about God. Don't you? When God looks back at your life at some point, he's just gonna see the highlights. And just all that other stuff just kind of gets swept aside. So cool. Then she makes a choice to believe even when it looks impossible. Sarah makes a choice to believe even when it looks impossible. By faith, she received power to conceive. And I was talking to my wife about this last night. She's like, this is so much more than conceiving. 99 years old, you have to conceive. That's, that's a miracle. But then you have to have the energy to be pregnant and carry this child, nurse them, chase after them. Like 
we have four kids and people keep asking if we're gonna have any more kids and no, in case you're wondering, four is great, but that's because I'm old. Like I'm 42, I cannot chase this two-year-old around after a long day of work. Like there's actually this really interesting thing I read that there is a Hebrew tradition that Sarah actually like aged backwards when she became pregnant, like youth came upon her, which is awesome. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's, she received power and maybe that's the power that it was. But she made this choice to believe even when it looked impossible. And finally, what I think is so cool is this. Sarah made a choice to be faithful in what God put in front of her. What did God put in front of Sarah? To be a wife and a mom. And she remained faithful in that. And you look at that and you're like, you are a wife and a mom and God holds you up as this huge example of faith. And too often, I think a church has gone to the, to the extreme of saying, well, that means all women should stay home and be wives and moms. If you read your Bible, you would understand that's not exactly what's being said there. What's being said is be faithful to what God has put in front of you. There are so many different opportunities that God will put in front of you. Is it to be a mom and a wife? If that's what God's put in front of you, do it to the fullest of what God has put in you and he will hold you up as an example of faith. But there's other ones in the Bible too. There's this lady named Yael. There's this coup and there's this evil king and he falls asleep and she takes a tent peg and rams it through his temple. So if God's called you to be a mercenary assassin, you just do it to the best of your ability and God will hold you up as an example. There was a woman in the Bible named Deborah who's a judge and a priestess. God holds her up as this huge example of faith. There's this woman in the New Testament named Lydia. She's like a high powered CEO. She's running businesses. She's funding ministries. See, there's no one calling that God holds up as an ideal for men or women. What God holds up in his ideal is faithfulness. Be faithful in that which I've put in front of you. And don't let anybody tell you it's too big or it's too small. Don't let anybody tell you that being home with your kids and being a mom is not where you're supposed to be. Don't let anyone tell you that being at work is not what you're supposed to be. If you've made a conscious choice, prayed through those things, decided it was the pathway that God had put you on, then you do it to the best of your ability you be faithful in that and God will hold you up and you'll end up in his hallway of faith. Amen? Okay, so Sarah dies and then it says, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is the only time we see Abraham weep or cry, which is interesting because he's gone through some tough stuff. He had to leave everything he knows at some point, he had to send away his nephew, Lot, who he loves. He had to send away Ishmael, his son, who he loves. He had to watch his wife, who he loved, be barren. Then God asked him to sacrifice his son. And still, this is the only time we see Abraham weep because death is tragic. It's not ever what we were designed for. And there's a time and a purpose and a reason to mourn and to weep. And if you've suffered great loss, you know that. And you know how important it is. And what's interesting is that when I typically like prepare for a message, 
I listen to a bunch of other people teach through a passage. I read commentaries. And a lot of people spent a ton of time on this, talking about areas in their life where they'd gone through grief and they'd walked through grief and how they dealt with it and how they mourned and how they weeped. And I could tell you everything they said, but it'd be inauthentic because I've never really experienced something like that. I will. Death comes for all of us. But I don't have any personal experience with this. In fact, to be honest, when people are mourning or weeping, I typically, or going through something very difficult, it typically makes me uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to react. And so I've been asking a bunch of people, okay, when you went through things that are difficult, like what helped? What should people say? What should people do? When you see someone, you know someone, you love someone who's suffering deep, deep loss, the one thing that everybody told me was just, just be present. Just be present. Just be there. I always thought I had to have the right answer or say the right thing. I thought I was supposed to be the comforter. You know what the Bible says? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. They will be comforted, but it's not my job to comfort them. The Bible actually calls the Holy Spirit the great comforter. And as you read through these things and people talk about them, most of the time efforts that people have, and I guarantee you I've said almost all these things, to try to comfort are not helpful. Well, at least they pass quickly. At least the, these are not helpful statements. The most helpful thing that you can do is just be present. Right? But the other thing that you can do that people told me over and over again is be practical. Be present or be practical. Just do something practical for the person. Mow their lawn, bring them a meal. Like I do have personal experience with this. So when our last child, Iva, was like two weeks old, she got RSV really, really bad. And we have small babies. So she was like seven pounds, like she's a little thing. And it was so bad that they wanted to send us to the hospital, but it was like mid COVID and it was, they weren't, we weren't even gonna be in there. And we're like, this is, we're not doing that. But what would happen is, you know, they're, they're all sick, they're all congested and she would be kind of wheezing. And then she would, she could be fully awake or she could be dead asleep. And then out of nowhere, she'd start coughing and she'd cough up this really thick green mucus and it would plug up her whole airway. And then she'd stop breathing and start turning blue. And you had like, 20, 30 seconds to get the nose sucker and suck it all out and turn her to the side and clean all the stuff out of her. And it could happen like that. And it happened a couple times an hour. And so like four days of that with three other kids at home, my wife and I are losing our minds. So tired, so strung out, just, and we had a friend call us and she was like, hey, I know a nurse who used to work in pediatrics and she's out of work right now because of all the crazy COVID stuff. Can I hire her to come over and do a couple night shifts for you? And I was like, yes, please. One of the coolest gifts I ever received. So practical. Anyone who's gone through great loss that I talked to had a story about someone just doing something practical for them. It's a really cool thing that you can do. Right? So Abraham weeps. And then he says this, verse three. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, 
I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. All right couple cultural things going on here that I have to unpack. Abraham has a problem. He wants to bury his wife, but he doesn't own anywhere a piece of land where he could bury his wife. And because he's a foreigner, he actually cannot purchase land. He's not allowed to own land in this country traditionally. So he's got a problem. And so he approaches the locals with his problem And they say, well, you can just use one of our tombs. They offer to loan him a tomb, which is weird because I always thought those were kind of like a single use thing, right? But they're actually not. So traditionally, here's what people would do. Those tombs, these caves, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about the cave later, in this area of Israel are mostly limestone. And you know what limestone does? It eats away at things right? And so what they would do is they would actually take the body, they would put it in this limestone tomb, and then they would come back a while later and there'd be nothing left with the bones. And they'd take those bones, they'd put them in a box, they called them an ossuary box, they're about yay big because you had to get the longest bone in your body, your femur in there. And then you would take those bones and you would take them back to the place of your ancestors and lay them to rest there. That is what the Hittites are suggesting Abraham do. Take this limestone tomb, let it eat. Now, what's super cool is I've actually seen one of these. So a number of years ago, not a, not a human one, but a number of years ago, we were on this, uh, went to Africa with a group of guys and we, we, we went to Uganda, we spent a, a week there and then we decided we were gonna drive to Kenya, which was this super cool thing. Um, and I was with uh, Jason Folkstad, Matt Heverly, and Wade Cummingford, and myself, and then a bunch of other guys, but they're the four in this story. So we, we get to our camp for the night because it took super long time to, to get you know, to where we were going. It was like a two-day drive. And we're walking around this camp, and there's a, a stall over there, and there's a bunch of dirt bikes in it. And so Jason Folkstad is like, hey, what's going on with the dirt bikes? And the guy's like, oh, well, there's a guy who runs the dirt bike safaris out of here, and uh, he's just storing his bikes. And so Jason's like, dirt bike safari? Let's do that. And the guy's like, no, no, no. They're like long-term groups. And he doesn't really, he's like, I want to talk to him. And I don't know if you guys know Jason Folkstad, but he can talk anybody into just about anything. And then Matt got involved and the two of them together, I was like, we're going on a dirt bike safari. This is just, it's a done deal. And um, they are all dirt bike guys. I am not, right? So I've ridden a dirt bike like twice um, and then I had a, a street bike for a little while and my wife was like, I'm not really comfortable with you riding that. And I'm like, I'm not really comfortable with it either. So I got rid of that. And my life, my life rule now is I don't do anything that requires a helmet, okay? So someone's like, you're gonna need a helmet for this. I'm like, I'm out. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. But dirt bike safari, I think I have to do that. And so we did, we got on these four dirt bikes with this guide and we, we chased giraffes on a dirt bike and we're, it was awesome, right? And we're, I fell twice, uh, nobody else did, but that's, you know, that's what happens. That's why you have a helmet. Um, and so we're near the end and the guy's like, do you wanna see a hyena cave? And the three guys were like, yeah, we do. And I was like, I 
choose life. I don't think the helmet's going to help me on this one. The guy's like, no, no, come here, come check it out. So I've got it up here for you. That was in the back of the hyena cave. Okay. And so we get all the way back there. There was a video, actually, we were going to play first. It's only a couple seconds, but if it's not up there, that's fine. Um, oh yeah, here we go. Right? And I was trying to figure out who I was going to trip so that I, because I'm not faster than any of those guys. So, but yeah, this, it's, it's all limestone. And what they do is they find these bodies out in the safari and they throw them in there and then they decompose. And I realized later that it's not a hyena cave. It's just a limestone cave that's decomposing bodies but that's what they end up with. Wow, I know, crazy, right? So that's, Abra that's what they offer to Abraham. They say, this is what you can do. This is the option that we have for you. But that's not what Abraham wants to do. Abraham's got another plan. And so we pick it up in verse seven. It says that Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at this gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. But Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. A miracle happens. Abraham is able to purchase land and he has a place to bury his wife. But I think what the most interesting thing in here is if you go all the way back to verse five, it's the Hittites impression of Abraham. They say this, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. How cool is that? As we've been tracking with Abraham for like the last 12 chapters, we kind of see the highs and lows. We see where he makes some mistakes. We see where he went wrong. We also see these great moments of faith. But the people that he lived among for 30 or 40 years, they look at Abraham, they look at his life, and you know what they say? You're a prince of God. What would they say about me? What would people who you've known for 30, 40 years say about you? What would people in Grant's Pass say about Edgewater? Prince of God, 
Prince of Darkness, what would they say about us? Such a cool thing. And I think this story actually gives us some really good insight into why Abraham says, has such a good witness among these people. The first thing I see when I look at Abraham here is this, he's humble, right? At the very beginning, here's what Abraham says. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Abraham was a powerful, rich, influential dude. He was a guy who was able to take his own personal men and beat four kings. He was a guy who had met with kings, who had saved cities. He's powerful, he's rich, and he's humble. Abraham is humble. Think about the person or couple people that you admire most. Someone you really, really admire. Most of those people are humble. Humility is such an important trait in believers. Everything we have, we've been given by Jesus. Everything I am is because of him. And if I'm not humble, I'm not gonna have a good witness. Humility is absolutely key. But then the second thing that I think is interesting is this. Abraham understands the culture that he's operating in. He does. Because when that guy said, oh, Abraham, I'll just give you the field. That did not mean he wanted to give Abraham the field. That is a Middle East cultural thing. And Abraham understood that. Because if he had just taken the field, it would not have gone well with his relationship, with his life, with his witness. And it's so important, whatever ministry we're gonna have, whatever area you're gonna have influence in, to understand the culture and the people that you're talking to. It doesn't mean you need to conform to the culture. It means you need to understand the culture. So years ago, I went on this missions training and I got this little book and it was fascinating. It was called Foreign to Familiar. And it was telling us about like different culture things that we should expect. And there was this one story that always stuck out. And it was this lady who'd moved from a warm weather culture, I think Indonesia or something. And she'd moved to the United States and she'd lived there for a year and she had no friends hadn't made any friends in her office, in her workplace. And then she ends up talking and having this conversation with another friend who had moved from the same area, but had been in the United States much longer. And she, through that conversation, here's what came out. She's like, well, my coworkers never invite me out to lunch. And then he's like, I had the same problem. And so then they talked to the coworkers and the coworkers was like, we did invite you out to lunch. We invited you out to lunch like every week for the first two months you worked here. You always said no. She's like, yeah, of course, because in her culture, it's rude to accept the first invite. When you, someone invites you to do something, you're supposed to say no, and then they're supposed to insist. Oh, but we really do want you to go. No, I couldn't possibly. Oh, but we'd love to have your company. Okay, well, if you twist my arm, and that's how it works in her culture. And so because she was so far outside of her culture, she lived somewhere for a year and never made any friends. Because after two months of Americans asking if you want to go out to lunch and you saying no, what do we do? We stop asking. You're grumpy. Uh, clearly, you don't want to be my friend. It's so important for us to be aware of the people and the culture. What did Paul say? To the Jews, a Jew. To the Gentiles, a Gentile. To the Greeks, a Greek. I understand who I'm trying to minister to. And because I understand them, I'm going to have a voice in their life. The third thing I see here that's interesting with Abraham, which is actually pretty challenging for me, is he goes through all the proper channels. This is very, very legal. 
They're in the gate of the city. It's before witnesses. They weigh out the gold. Abraham goes through all the proper channels. He could have very easily been like, I've got a bunch of men. God said he was gonna give me all this land. I'd like that cave over there. I think I'm just gonna take it. And I think it's so important to our witness as believers, as Christians, as members of Edgewater, that we do things correctly, that we pay taxes, that we pull building permits, that we, right? Like, you remember the road debacle? Yeah, right? Do you know how many times in elders meetings we talked about just getting a bulldozer and moving those things? It would have been so easy. And we had many of you offer to do it for us, which we appreciated. (laughs) But it wouldn't have been right. What they did wasn't right, but our response has to be more right. We need to operate within the systems that God has put in place because otherwise it can really ruin our witness. And I think the Hittites and the people around Abraham noticed that. Abraham, you probably could have just taken this, but no, you came, you sought us out at the gate, you named your price, you weighed it out with current measures, you went through the proper channels. And then Abraham is generous. Abraham's incredibly generous. 400 shekels was the opening offer, okay? That's how this was supposed to go. He says, oh, it's 400 shekels. Abraham's supposed to be like, 400 shekels, that old piece of dirt, 50 shekels. Oh, I couldn't possibly. 350 for you, my friend, because you're such a good person. 350, that's highway robbery. 100 shekels, I couldn't possibly go lower than 200 shekels. 200 shekels it is then, and they settle on a price. That's how this was supposed to go. Abraham says, 400 shekels? Okay, I'll be generous because that's good for my witness and my wife's worth it, right? Christians, we should be generous people. So, so generous. I, my great-grandfather was a missionary. Anywhere he went, he would talk to people about Jesus and he would he just, you gotta know Jesus, you gotta know Jesus, you gotta know Jesus, you gotta know Jesus. And then he would always, when he went to restaurants, he would always leave tracks, like a a track. But he was a terrible tipper. And my mom was a waitress and it would drive her crazy. And she was like, I would take the tracks because I didn't want, he was such a bad witness. We need to be generous people. Abraham is incredibly generous. And then the last thing that I think is so cool about this story, and I don't know if it affected the Hittites, but it really spoke to me is this. Abraham sets down roots. Abraham knows this is the promised land. This is where my family is supposed to be. And so he gets this opportunity to purchase some land, to put down some roots, and he does it. And those roots that he sinks into this area and this community, they anchor his family here, really. If you read the end of Genesis, they're all down in Egypt. And Jacob, at the end of his life, says, hey, when I die, take me back to Pilah, Take me back to the cave that was sold by the Hittite. Bury my bones there. That's our possession. Abraham took this opportunity as the patriarch of his family to say, as for me and my house, this is where we're supposed to be. This is where we serve. This is where we live. This is the promised land. Parents, fathers, grandfathers, have you set down roots in a church, in a community? Have you invested this is our church. 
If this is your church, invest, sink down some roots. It's so good for your family. If this is not your church, that's fine. Find your church, sink some roots in deep. It anchors Abraham's family to the promised land for the rest of their lives. And I think it's so beautiful and so important. And I think it's more and more of a challenge to the younger generation because so many of us are just, we're changing jobs, we're changing locations, we're changing cities, we're changing churches, we're shopping, 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 shopping. What fits best for me instead of where can I put down roots to grow something permanent for my family, right? Abraham, such a brilliant dude, the more I study him. So that's a chapter on death. And as I was thinking about it, as I'm looking back and I'm thinking about it, I just think, man, life's so short. Man, life's so short. It's too short to be worried about being right, isn't it? It's too important to have a witness, to have love, to know people, to share with people, right? Because here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, I do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We have hope. Because of Jesus, we have hope. And the most important thing that we could possibly do with the short amount of time that we have is share that hope, share it with other people. Because without that, it's just a very short life and then there's death. But with that hope, with Jesus saving me with his blood from myself, man, I have a future of eternity. You have a future of eternity. We have hope and it's something we need to share, amen? Father, thank you for this chapter, a death and a funeral and the opportunity that we have to look at Abraham and Sarah and see what their lives are like, see the things that they did, how they lived. Lord, I'm challenged by that. Lord, I pray that like Abraham, I would be a, a man of humility and generosity. I pray that like Sarah, we would all be people who make a choice to follow you, make a conscious choice about the direction our family is headed in, endure hard times, and stay faithful for the things that you put in front of us. Lord, may we be people like that. May we be a church like that. In Jesus' name, amen.